Thank you, Brother Glenn. That was beautiful. And it made me even think of, of your dad, who is one of the more godly men that I've ever come across uh, as he served as an elder at this church. Thank you for that. So uh, I just want to make just a quick announcement about the upcoming uh, vote that's going to be happening um, in Sunday. And I don't want to look at like I'm stumping or campaigning for Daniel, so to speak, uh, since there is a vote that's involved in it. But I do want to say this, and I need to say it for my conscience sake. Uh, outside of the stewardship of my family, there is nothing more important to me in my life than you and the stewardship that God has given me to be your pastor it is a privilege that I do not take lightly. Uh, it is something that, that I wake up each day praying that the Lord would enable me and strengthen me to be able uh, to serve you in that capacity. Uh, and knowing that I'm getting ready to take an extended break, um, because I take that privilege so seriously, I can commend no higher person in my mind than Daniel to be able to serve in that role in my absence during that time. Um, God has, has gifted him. He has anointed him. You're going to be blessed by him next Sunday as you hear him preach. Um, but I, I want to affirm in you that we as elders take this role incredibly seriously. And if our endorsement is there, we, we want you to know that we feel comfortable with him serving in this particular capacity. You got another week to get to know Daniel. He's back there. He's grinning at me right now uh, because I'm drawing attention to him at this point. But feel free to, to get, take time to, to get to know Daniel over this next week. And, and that way you can feel good about your conscience, about uh, how you will uh, vote for this position uh, next Sunday. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Oh, Father of all fathers. We pray that you would allow us, Lord, to, to be so grateful for the way that, Lord, you have extended faith down through the generations and that, Lord, you have employed godly men to be able to do so. As Brian prayed, not everyone had that privilege in their home. But, Lord, we pray that you would allow those of us who have to be appreciative. We pray, Lord, that uh, our faith would be strengthened as we look back on the saints of old to see how they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and that in the midst of that, that testimony, Lord, just blazes all the more to glorify you. And Lord, as we talk about that, the saints of old this morning, we pray, Lord, that that shining light would still be there and inspire us and encourage us to endure to the very end. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. This morning, we are about to launch into our Lord's extended teaching about, quote, the end. And that automatically is going to lead us into asking the question, the end of what? And I want you to hold on to that specific question, the end of what? There are few issues in the evangelical church that are more divisive than when we refer it to in theology as eschatology, which is simply a word that means the study of end times. And by that, we are referring to the second coming of Jesus when he will judge the earth and inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth. And sadly, most evangelicals' understanding of this event comes from popular fiction. The Left Behind series of books, along with its movies, have formulated in many people's minds how the present earth will end. And Left Behind was marketed to Christians on the same level as Twilight and Harry Potter and The Hunger Games. And I knew it must have been a financial success when one day I went into our Books A Million and I saw that there were left-behind Beanie Babies. I kid you not. 
and also the Left Behind board game. And despite the fact that these authors uh, openly confess that they wrote fiction, it tends to become an interpretive lens by which one understands their eschatology. Now, if this is you, I'm going to challenge you by saying that's not good enough. No matter how popular a fictional work might be, you must never let that become your understanding of the Scripture. The Bible is God's words. Therefore, it is truth without error, and just as it should inform us as to our beginnings, it should also inform us of our end. So, to that purpose, I'm going to ask that you lay aside preconceived notions that you have about the end times and allow the text of Scripture to speak for itself. I know as we delve into this, you might find yourself disagreeing with certain positions that I take on the subject, but please allow that disagreement to be based upon the text of Scripture and not on what Jerry Jenkins or Tim LaHaye or even Hal Lindsey have written. Let's allow the Bible to speak for itself. So before we get into our text, we need to remind ourselves that we have this gospel because the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write it. Therefore, we need to see what the author is doing throughout the whole of his book, not just read a couple of chapters as though a small portion will do. It's going to help if we look back at our general outline of Matthew. I've provided that for you in your worship guide. Now, please, don't tune out on me here because this part's important. Otherwise, we will miss the emphasis in the teaching of Jesus in chapter 24 and 25. We must, we must see these two chapters as part of a greater whole. When you look at the outline, you'll see there are seven sections of Matthew. The first section is the prologue of the book with Jesus' birth narratives, and then the last is the death and resurrection of Jesus along with the commissioning of the disciples. Now, if I was writing the book, I would have ended the story much like Mark did with his gospel with the resurrection. Jesus coming to life, triumphing over the grave, that seems like that would have been a good place to end the story. In fact, Mel Gibson chose to end it that way in his movie, The Passion of the Christ. I remember when I saw it in the movie theater, people literally applauded at that moment when Jesus steps out of the grave. But Matthew doesn't conclude his book that way. The final scene that he records is the Great Commission, and that closes with these words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After Jesus finished his work on the earth, this is the last thought Matthew wanted his readers to carry away. Jesus has finished his mission. Now go forward and make disciples knowing that you have Christ's authority until the end of the age. We must keep in mind the ending of the book as Jesus gets ready to teach us about the end of the age. So leading up to this finale, we have five major sections of Matthew. And they have a distinctive pattern to them. Each one has two divisions. Matthew provides a narrative of what Jesus did and said. Then he gives us an extended discourse or sermon from our Lord. We're in the last of these sections. Last week, we completed the narrative portions of chapters 19 through 23, where Matthew told us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his subsequent confrontations with the religious leaders. 
There, in chapter 23, verse 38, he tells the Pharisees that their house will be laid desolate. Just like the cursed fig tree from chapter 21, they will bear no more fruit. Their blessing has ended. They missed their moment of hope because they refused to be gathered to the Messiah. A major paradigm shift is about to happen. So now we're getting ready to have a scene change in chapter 24. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Again, this is on page 829 of your pew Bible. We need to make sure we capture this transition because it's the reason for our Lord's long lesson here. As Jesus is exiting the temple, the disciples were marveling over the construction of the building. Mark 13.1 and Luke 21.5 records their excitement with a little more enthusiasm than we have here in Matthew. These fishermen and country boys from Galilee would have been awestruck by the temple. At each visit to Jerusalem, they would probably see some new feature that would have them elicit their admiration in the moment. And Jesus tells them something staggering here in verse 2. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now to any Jew, that would have been shocking. Their temple had been destroyed once before by the Babylonians, some 600 years previously, and rebuilt just as opulent as it was before. But it's not just the building itself that was important. This was the place where sacrifices were made, where literally people made their peace with God. The temple represented God's presence with the Jewish people. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, just said it would be destroyed. That would be a complete radical change for the Jews. They could only signal to the disciples here, with the temple gone, that must be the end of the age that Jesus referred to back in chapter 13. So now on this side of the cross, we are not surprised by this. The temple is no longer necessary for one to make restitution to God because Jesus paid the penalty for sin for the believers at the cross once and for all time. There's no longer a need for a sacrificial system. God no longer inhabits the temple. He now inhabits his people, the church. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we, the church, are now the temple of God. But for these Jewish men who were the first disciples of Jesus, this news was utterly shocking. We learned earlier from chapter 21 that during Holy Week, Jesus spent his days teaching in the temple courtyard, and each evening he returned to the Mount of Olives near the village of Bethany. And there is a spiritual significance to that in Ezekiel chapter 10, but I'm going to leave you to pursue that on your own. The parallel passage here in Mark chapter 13 makes it known that the temple was visible from the Mount of Olives. The disciples, curious about Jesus' prophecy concerning the temple, inquire of him these questions here in verse 3. Tell us then when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now note by the way the question is asked, they assume all of these things are the same event. The toppling of the temple, Jesus assuming his lordship as Messiah, and the end of the age where nations are judged and almighty God raises his chosen people to rule over the earth. They assume all of that is a single event. 
It's clear at this point they've not envisioned the church as a display of God's glory where the gospel is a light to the Gentiles. Now, we should keep in mind that, quote, the end of the age is a phrase only used in Matthew's gospel. It's used three times in reference to judgment in chapter 13 when Jesus explains his parables. It's used here in chapter 24. One of your few Bibles may have close of the age. And it's also used later in the Great Commission in chapter 28, what we just read earlier. The only other place in the New Testament that it appears is in Hebrews chapter 9, and that occurs in the context of verses 24 through 26. Allow me to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those are the only places in the entire New Testament that the phrase end of the age are used. This is what causes Jesus to launch into what is called the Olivet Discourse or the Lesson on the Mount of Olives. So let me give you a general overview of the sermon so you know where we're headed. Because while this whole teaching is given to us in one long lesson, I believe it's going to take us a couple more sermons to to get the fuller meaning of it. Now, I've adapted this outline from D.A. Carson's commentary. Just wanted to put that out there up front. And the first 28 verses, Jesus will describe, as he calls it, birth pains, like contractions leading to a new life being born, so will these pains leading, uh, be leading up to the new age. Then he describes his appearance as the Son of Man coming in the clouds in verses 29 through 31. Once again, he will return to the metaphor of a fig tree to show the importance of the birth pains. And at the conclusion of chapter 24, he describes the suddenness of these events and the need to be watchful. And that is followed in chapter 25 with various parables on what being watchful means. That is where we're headed. We're only going to be able to get through the first 14 verses this morning, but we should keep in mind that the bulk of the sermon here is about the state of watchfulness in the disciples meaning how they should be conducting themselves in faithfulness as they await the Lord's return. This faithful endurance has been a frequent topic of Jesus. Our Lord has repeatedly been open and honest about what it means to follow him. He wants his disciples to be aware of the cost if they choose him as Messiah. Let's go back and let's just look at three instances again. Again, don't tune out here. If we miss what Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been communicating all along, we'll come up with wrong interpretations of this passage and, of course, wrong applications concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now, let's turn and look at the first time that Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. That's found on page 815 of your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 10. There Jesus chose the twelve... And he sent them out in pairs without his personal presence, as he said in verse 6, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And curiously, 
Jesus gave them this warning beginning in verse 16. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Now note this, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to death, over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And here is our phrase that we'll see again in chapter 24. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns in Israel before the Son of Man comes. Strangely, there is no indication that the disciples encountered any of this persecution when they went out from here. In fact, we're told in the parallel accounts of, of Mark and Luke, they met with great success. But Jesus was obviously anticipating a future time with his disciples, warning them that a warm, rosy reception will not be the norm, but a need for faithfulness and endurance in tribulation. Perhaps we might also look at Matthew chapter 16. This is found on page 822 of your pew Bible. The disciple Simon was just commended for his open confession that he identified Jesus as the Christ. In fact, he was given the nickname Rock or Peter. Way to go, Simon Peter. And then in the very next scene, Jesus prophesies that he's going to Jerusalem and he must suffer and be killed by the religious authorities and he'll be raised on the third day. But Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke the Lord for saying such things. And Jesus tells Peter he is acting on behalf of Satan in that moment. And then he turns and challenges his disciples, knowing what lays ahead of him in Jerusalem. In verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is a personal cost that each follower is going to have to pay that requires them to carry their cross, and they will find life if they do. Hardship and not comfort awaits his followers. And then finally, our third example is from Matthew chapter 23, just before this one. This one's indirect as it pertains to the scribes and the Pharisees, but it also reveals the persecution to believers. Jesus tells these Jewish leaders what he will do for them, which, though a mercy, will eventually bring judgment upon their heads. Jesus will send his followers again to reach the lost sheep of Israel. But instead of receiving his disciples, they will reject the gospel. Now hear our Lord's words here in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you 
may come all the righteous blood shed on earth and the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the, the, uh, Zach the blood of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So from these three examples alone, we see that Jesus anticipates his disciples will undergo intense persecution for his sake, which will require them to endure or persevere as a testimony to the end. So before we read into Matthew 24 some idea of a future great tribulation from a modern perspective, Jesus expected this persecution, this tribulation to occur within the lifetime of his disciples, the ones we're talking about here in chapters 24 and 25. So we'll need to ask ourselves, is Jesus' intention in these two chapters to be focused on the end or with the task at hand? which he wants to encourage his disciples to endure the hardship, knowing the payoff will be worth it. Now, with this as our background, let's go through chapter 24, verses 4 through 14. Remember, the disciples asked, when will these things be, which refers to the destruction of the temple predicted there in verse 2. They assume this will also include the judgment and the end of pagan rule. So we read these next few verses. Ask yourself, is Jesus giving us signs here as predictors or as normal occurrences until the, quote, end? Notice first instruction. Jesus answered him, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, is there any indication from the text that these activities will somehow increase? No. In fact, all of these events that happen in the lifetime of the disciples prior to the fall of Jerusalem and continue through today, I might add, there are messianic pretenders and false prophets that are mentioned in the book of Acts. You find them at chapter 5, verses 36 through 37, chapter 8, verses 9 through 10, and chapter 21, verse 38. And others are mentioned in the Jewish historian Josephus' antiquities. As far as wars go, there were numerous uprisings between 33 and 70 AD where thousands of Jews were executed. Just before the destruction of the temple, there were four different men vying for the throne of emperor, creating political upheaval in the empire. Also, there were three major famines during the reign of Claudius. Famines created food shortages and riots. And one of these famines is mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. Numerous natural disasters occurred. Earthquakes were common in this region. The cities of Laodicea and Heropolis and Colossae were devastated by an earthquake in 60 AD. What Jesus mentions are common occurrences, but merely the contractions as we await the ultimate event. He wants to make sure that they're not used to lead his followers astray. He is still on the throne despite catastrophic events. Nothing should divert his disciples from their mission. And what about them personally? Verse 9, 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Is this not what we read about in the New Testament? Did Judas not betray our Lord? When we read about this in Acts, did they not stone Stephen for preaching Christ? Did not the Gentile Herod Antipas behead James, the brother of John, in order to appease the Jews? Did not Alexander the silversmith in Ephesus start a riot over Paul's Christianity? And didn't Paul write to Timothy that Philagius and Hermogenes, once brothers of the faith, deserted him? The Apostle John wrote in his letter that there were some that claimed to be Christians that went out from them, but were not of them. In fact, he does not, does he not call them numerous antichrists. You find that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. And note carefully what will be the result while all this is going on. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, there are many who point to this verse who believe that once the gospel has been proclaimed in the whole wide world, that will be when Jesus returns. And I can understand why they might believe that, because in Revelation, we are told that there will be representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne praising the lamb that was slain. So many see this as a predictor of the coming of Jesus. In fact, there was a president of a Baptist missions agency that believed as Christians we were to take the gospel to every nation in order to speed up the process of Jesus' return. That was his mission strategy. But when we see this translation of the Greek word oikomene, when it's translated as whole world, is it used as we would use it? Does it mean every single inhabited place, every mountain, cave, every island, hut? Or is it a technical word, or word here, or phrase, to mean the known world referring to the Roman Empire? Listen to this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. I think you're familiar with this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, oikomene, should be registered. Acts chapter 11, verse 28. As one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Oikomene. This took place in the days of Claudius. Paul, writing in Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Oikomene whole world merely meant the known reaches of the empire. We need to be careful that we not read our own modern understanding into the text. We must see what it meant to its original audience first. But note why the gospel is being proclaimed here. He doesn't say it's being proclaimed merely because people are being saved by it. He says it is a testimony to the nations. It is either a testimony of blessing or a testimony of a curse. 
While the gospel is good news to the sinner who sees his or her need and embraces it, it is also the measure of judgment to those that refuse it. Jesus just referred to that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, when he speaks of the martyr's blood being on the hands of the Pharisees for killing those who were sent to proclaim good news. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ, to God, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. To the one who receives it, the gospel is a blessing. But to the one who rejects it, it ensures their condemnation. The gospel will go forward despite the hardships that followers of Christ must endure. It will not return void. It is always effective. For some, it will bring everlasting life. For others, it will be a testimony that they had the privilege to hear, but they rejected its life-saving message. Like the Pharisees, it will bring final judgment upon their own heads. So while we won't necessarily be able to finish our pursuit of the answer to the question, the end of what, and again, Lord willing, the next few weeks, I hope to make a strong case that primarily we're going to be talking about the temple and its sacrifices here. Let's take stock of what we know so far, because these are relevant applications for the 21st century Christians as well as for the 1st century Christians. And there are four observations here. Feel free to write these down. Four observations. Followers of Jesus should count the cost and expect suffering for the name of Christ. I'm going to repeat that again. Followers of Jesus should count the cost and expect suffering for the name of Christ. Our first century counterparts faced it, and we too will face it. Even in our own nation, we will have to face the same. We must prepare ourselves for it. And there is a beautiful promise here that Jesus repeats. He says, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. That is a beautiful promise because it means the suffering is only momentary. It is temporary. Salvation, even from the persecution, awaits us. But more important is that our souls are secure in Christ before a holy God. But our willingness to endure shows just how precious this gift is to the outside world. It is a testimony to the saving power of Jesus Christ. Number two, followers of Jesus should expect to endure unpleasant circumstances regardless of persecution. Followers of Jesus should expect to endure unpleasant circumstances regardless of persecution. We are not to be led astray by our current situation, folks. We can become convinced that in the moment, in the hardship, that somehow God is against us. But we too will have to endure the claims of false prophets and false messiahs. We too will face wars and rumors of wars. We will suffer with our neighbors through natural disasters. And for the vast majority of Christians in the world, we will be persecuted. Those in of themselves are not uncommon circumstances. 
Just because we are privileged with the gospel, we too will face sickness and tornadoes and the death of loved ones and disease and political conflict and even inflation. In fact, if we are wise, we will use such situations as opportunities to share the gospel with others. That our hope is in Christ, even despite all these other things going on in our lives. Observation number three. I love this one. The gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel cannot be stopped. Despite natural disasters, despite sickness and wars and rumors of wars, and despite the increase of lawlessness, and even if they cut off your head for the sake of Christ, the gospel will go forward. Christ's church will be established, and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. Jesus just said, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Not might be, not maybe, it will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Do not be discouraged by what you see around you. Jesus reigns, and the gospel is still saving We've just seen testimony of it in the baptisms this morning. Number four, observation four. Judaism will not save you. Judaism will not save you, nor can anything else aside from the gospel. This is the whole thrust of the confrontation with the religious leaders. Their temple will be destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., their sacrificial system of reconciliation with God will cease. The writer to the Hebrews makes this case in his sermon overall. The only thing that can save is the gospel. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot manipulate, pull strings, or negotiate your way into heaven. There is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. He has done everything, everything necessary to obtain the salvation of your soul. And all that he asks is that you believe, and in your belief that you put action behind that belief by giving yourself to him. And that you, because your confidence is in that, and that alone, would endure to the end. Let's pray. Lord, I I hope that my brothers and sisters can sense the excitement of what you were trying to convey to your first disciples. I hope, Lord, that they see that, that you are sovereignly in control and that, yes, Lord, we know, we recognize that they had to endure common evils of this world, living in a sin-sick world, and yet they also had to endure persecution for their faith. But either way, Lord, they were secure because of what your son Jesus did on their behalf. And that they were able to endure to the end as a testimony to all the nations of your saving power, that it is only in Christ alone that we can be saved. And so, Lord, I pray for the person here, the dear friend that has come today, 
that needs to have hope restored, that they look at the shamble of their lives, they see what sin has done to them, that they, they see what trying to live on their own apart from Jesus has done, and they come to an end of themselves, first and foremost, and they see the great need for Jesus, that they would open their hearts and they would embrace Jesus as Savior. They would put their faith in what he did on the cross. And then for my fellow brothers and sisters, I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they see that this is not their home. We're not there yet. That you're still working, you're still using us as a testimony to the nations. That, Lord, we would be able to endure hardships. We will endure suffering. We will endure pain unbearable in this life. We will face persecution, and it will be hard. It will be difficult. You use words like endure and persevere. There are brothers and sisters sitting in this room right now who feel in agony because of the losses that they've experienced. I pray, Lord, that you would remind them of the cross, that your son, too, faced agony. And there was victory at the end because he endured to the end. So, Lord, allow us to have our faith in what Christ has done, knowing our hope is sure and it is secured by the precious blood of Jesus. When we go through the trials of this life, let us look to our future knowing what Christ has obtained for us. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus alone. Amen. Though Satan